well, to me, Black history is American history, right? It's it's global history. And I was very fortunate to be raised in a home where um, there was a lot of value placed on understanding history, where you come from, was exposed to a lot of books, uh, historical figures. And so it's always been core to how I think about American history. Um, mm -hmm. And so for me, I, you know, it's encouraging when um, I see more focus broadly on Black history um, during the month of February, because it feels like we are making progress and closing some of these gaps that exist between, um, you know, people who've had different life experiences and different exposure. Um, to kind of fill in some of these these holes that exist because it like I said it's it's American history and it serves all of us if um we have uh kind of a clearer picture of kind of what got us to where we are today so we can make sure the future is brighter. This is Inspiring Women. Today I'm speaking with Candace Richardson. She is a principal at General Catalyst. She has a long history in healthcare finance, but she actually wanted to start out being a journalist. I want to talk to you about that, Candace, but I'm really excited to have, have you today on the program. Thank you for being on Inspiring Women. Thank you for having me, Laurie. All right. Well, let's let's dive in. So, Candace, you know, I have been studying your um, background, just, you know, storied career, starting off Goldman Sachs, Town Hall Ventures, now a principal at General Catalyst, a premier healthcare firm, um, doing quite a lot of investing. But for you, you wait, you just talk about yourself starting off wanting to be a journalist and going in a really different direction. So how did you end up here? Can you give us that background? Yeah, happy to. Um, so growing up, one of the traditions in my household was watching the news. Uh, so I was a big fan of Peter Jennings and Christian Amanpour, and I would watch Crossfire on CNN back in the day when people, the opposing viewpoints would sit at the same <laughs> table and, and hash it out. Um, and I was always so impressed by kind of the curiosity that these journalists brought to the table. Um, the types of questions they asked and the appearance of being, um, you know, very familiar with such a broad range of issues and with whatever was relevant in the world at the time. So um, I just kind of became obsessed with that career pathway. I had my parents drag me to the CNN headquarters many times in Atlanta really? for the studio. Um, and uh, I, I thought I would go that route, but when I went to Columbia, which has a very good journalism school, um, kind of by chance, I ended up making friends um, who were interested in finance. And um, they were like, hey, just come with me to this event. I got an email. There's going to be someone from an investment bank there. There's going to be free pizza, so no downside. <laughs> um, and so I went to this dinner, and it's funny how the you know life works out because um, there was meant to be a woman from HR, from Morgan Stanley there, who had to pull out at the last minute. And one of the trustees of Columbia ended up coming to that dinner instead. He was very um, uh, passionate about kind of developing young talent and recruiting from his alma mater. 
And I was just blown away by this man. He worked in securities at Morgan Stanley. And I remember he taught me the difference between equity and debt. And it took me down this rabbit hole. Wow, you know, the, the economy is such a critical kind of influence to current events that are happening, right? Um, and then he told me about a program they don't kind of broadcast widely for freshman internships at Morgan Stanley. Um, and it was kind of, you know, off to the races from there. Um, I became very interested at the start in commodities. Again, that connection between, um, you know, these like really tangible assets and things that were going on in the world at the time. I remember there were soybean farmers on strike in Argentina. And I thought that was fascinating to see how the price of soybeans change. Um, and yeah, I kind of stayed in finance um, and really enjoyed yeah, learning about of how the how the world works through an economic lens. Well, talk about picking a large section of the economy. So if we talk about healthcare, where you spend um, your professional time, that is a $4 trillion uh, part of the economy. Absolutely enormous. And, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, um, just continuing to grow. So I wanted to actually go a bit into, you know, the investment thesis that you have, because certainly... Um, with uh, with investments, you know, financial returns are the main objective. But you've uh, talked about a really different value thesis in terms of what you're looking looking for. Um, it, you work at General Catalyst, and just to quote you, you've said we're interested in investing in companies that are going to be at the intersection of financial and societal societal returns. And one without the other isn't particularly interesting to us. So money is the way the world works and how the world goes around and generally is the main focus for investing. Um, but you're talking about something different. Can you give us a, a little bit more information about that? Yeah, happy to. Um, yeah, I think you're you're definitely right. You hit the nail on the head that, um, you know, where we invest our capital says a lot about the type of society we are and what we want for the future. Um, and so we at General Catalyst feel it's very important that we are you know, doing right by our investors, right? We have a lot of big pension funds, um, et cetera, that, that are relying on us to make returns on their investment. Um, but that can't uh, be at odds with, you know, investing in the future that we think is most beneficial for the society we live in. And so from a healthcare standpoint, um, like you said, it's a very large industry. In the US, we spend $4 trillion a year and that's rapidly growing. Um, and you know, the experience for most people is abysmal. Um, costs are high, quality of care has been low, very hard to access care. Even if you have a lot of resources, mm -hmm. uh, talk to folks who, um, you know, get a cancer diagnosis. My view is, you know, you can be an executive at a Fortune 500 company or, you know, someone who is a Medicaid beneficiary. It's probably not good experience for either. Um, mm -hmm. There's degrees of how bad that experience is, but we have a long way to go across the board. And so um, 
we're really passionate about investing in founders who want to improve quality access um, while reducing the cost of care because it is unsustainable. And um, the ramifications for how unsustainable our spend is on healthcare are far reaching, right? We're talking about um, macroeconomic implications, uh, you know, uh, you know, national security implications. It's something that we have to, to get right. And so the types of companies we want to invest in um, have used technology oftentimes um, and innovative payment models such that they can deliver care or enable the delivery of care in a way um, that aligns incentives, right? And so in today's system, there's a lot of incentives to actually provide more care, prescribe more drugs, do mm -hmm. more surgeries, because then you can bill Medicare more and then the doctors make more, et cetera. Um, the type of care we're interested in is proactive and you actually get paid when you deliver better care at a lower cost. So, so maybe let's go into some of those investments because, you know, one of the areas, just if I look at, you know, some of the companies um, that you have invested in, they're companies like Eleanor Health and Homeward and CityBlock and, you know, half a dozen or a dozen more that are specifically focused on whether it's Medicaid populations or the underserved. So I'd love to just get your perspective on, you know, generally, even though Medicaid populations, just to talk about that, um, populations, 90 million people, this enormous, um, you know, enormous volume of people out there who are covered, yet the Medicaid reimbursement rates are low. So how do you, how, how do you see that investment thesis playing out so that you get both the financial return and the societal benefit. I mean, the societal benefit in that case seems like easy to understand, you know, helping people who are generally not able to get the care that they both deserve and need. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and we feel very honored to have been, uh, you know, a long-term partner with City Block Health, who I would argue has really been a pioneer in this space to demonstrate to the market that um, you can serve the Medicaid and dual eligible population, meaning people who qualify for Medicaid and Medicare um, in a way where you provide dignified care, high quality care, good access to care, but you can also um, generate a profit and generate good returns for your investors. And so that's been amazing to kind of witness that journey and then also, um, you know, be a part of a team that's investing in a lot of companies that are kind of coming up behind them and in different areas. Um, you know, I think, you know, people are people in general. There's a lot more similarities across different populations than differences. Um, but there are some um some differences in the way that Medicaid is paid for and regulated that make it a bit more complicated, right? Yes. And so there are differences by state in terms of the reimbursement rates and different regulations around what's covered. Um, you know, the budgets are changing year over year. Sometimes there's waivers that expire, et cetera. 
Um, and so there's kind of a, a complexity around kind of the regulatory environment and the operations that need to kind of match the realities when you're serving the Medicaid population. Um, and then within the Medicaid population, aside from kind of the age blind and disabled group, which tends to be a more stable um, kind of membership base, uh, there is you know, a decent amount of churn, right? People will qualify for Medicaid one year and then not the next, or the kind of administrative overhang of making sure you, you know, enroll each year into Medicaid is a big burden. And so I'd say there has to be a lot of focus on the social drivers of health, um, in addition to the more kind of clinical uh, needs that members have. And so the companies that we invest in that serve the Medicaid population, like CityBlock, um, like Eleanor Health and others, you'll see that they have very holistic models where they're not just doing physical care, they're doing mental health care, they're helping with social services. Oh, you need help finding a job? You know, they can connect you with people um, that can help you get that sorted. Um, because oftentimes you'll find that the downstream um, kind of physical ailments that people are dealing with have upstream mental or social drivers that, that need to be targeted if we wanna drive sustainable change. And then about that sustainable change and that societal impact, Candace, you know, I saw it, we were introduced by um, one of your companies, Homeward, who has recently achieved uh, becoming a certified B corporation. So not just financial returns, but also um, providing sustainable sustainability and societal impact. On that side of the equation, which is such an important part of your investment thesis, how are you measuring that? How, how do you hold your investments um, accountable to that? And how does Homeward you know, get measured with now this new important status of being a certified B Corporation? Yeah, um, the, the B Corporation certification is really a testament to um, the founders of, of Homeward Health, the co-founders, so Amar Kendale and, and Dr. Jenny Schneider, um, who we co-founded the business with, and, um, you know, their strong kind of moral compass around um, what we call responsible innovation. And that was one of the reasons why um, we, we work together. We have aligned values in that way. Um, and so we rolled out, um, uh, an initiative, it must have been a couple of years ago now, called Responsible Innovation. And it's really been woven into everything that we do at General Catalyst. And so each time we make an investment, whether it's a new investment, um, a follow-on investment in an existing company, we actually have a section of our investment committee memos that need approval from the whole partnership, where we, in Quite a bit of detail talk about the responsible innovation implications of what this company is doing. Have we had conversations with the founders? What's their kind of view on the um, positive and or negative um, outcomes, uh, whether intended or unintended, that could arise over the years? Um, we have to in detail talk about um, you know, what we're doing to make sure um, that the company stays on course, how we're holding them accountable, 
Um, and so, you know, these are conversations that we're having with founders throughout the process leading up to an investment. Um, and then, you know, the responsible innovation component gets reviewed before any deal is, um, is approved at the firm as well. And then on an ongoing basis, I think it's just a really critical part of governance, right? Being that kind of voice in the room um, to say, hey, have we thought about X or Y? You know, we're regularly asking companies to um, look at the data to see, is there any dis uh, disparities between, you know, how certain subpopulations are responding to your care, right? Um, yeah. So that's all in place. I think we're we're still working on um, more of kind of like a structured kind of analytics approach because as I'm sure you can imagine, um, all these companies have different models and different metrics that they're tracking. They're at different stages of their journey. And so it's all about balancing, um, you know, having the visibility around what impact are we making, but also not um, kind of creating a, a burden um, for the companies based on kind of their stage and, and where they're at. And I, Candice, I actually wanted to ask you a bit more about this because I think sort of that responsible invest, uh, investing, having a lens towards health equity, having a lens towards societal impact, I mean, it's very compelling. Um, yet there's also data out there where, you know, what seems to me to be just these amazing opportunities, moral imperatives, if you will, and I'll just take an example, women's health. So we've got the World Economic Forum recently putting out a report that if we made a significant investment in women's health, that we would see $1 trillion of economic impact um, globally, which sounds absolutely amazing. If you look at the investment data uh, of women health companies in the United States that have been founded over the past several years, we've actually seen that decrease materially, actually. So, you know, a little girl math here, like how do we square that circle? Because the compelling interests of you know these these societal impacts that are even measurable, they don't always line up against um, investments that are being made. I mean, just what you know what what should we think about that? Yeah, um, I'm really glad that you brought this up because it's something I'm very passionate about. Um, so uh, there's there's multiple <laughs> causes for this, but if I think about there being two main buckets from my vantage point, um, you know, part of it is, you know, the decision makers at investment firms um, and how that mix is evolving. And I think we have a lot of progress to be made, um, but there are more and more general partners that are women at investment firms. And that has an impact on the types of companies that investment firms will invest in. Um, you know, myself, along with um, my partner, Holly Maloney at the firm, you know, we proudly invested in a number of women's health companies, right? And that's only going to continue. And, and I hope to grow within the firm and, you know, we'll just be investing more and more in the space. Um, on the other side, I think there's a lot of structural challenges around lack of investment in women's health care. Right? Women aren't just smaller men. And so some of the statistics around the lack of funding and research around um, women's health 
um, it's going to take time. It's going to take time to kind of dig mm -hmm. ourselves out of that hole. And I think, you know, there's more kind of political attention on it, investment attention, pressure from society, right? Um, and that's going to lead to more research, right? And then I think we'll get this kind of snowball effect that will create a more um, kind of fruitful environment for companies to be built in the space. You pair that with, you know, more um, decision makers at firms being women. And, and I think the future looks really bright. Well, I hope so. And I think that, you know, the more that we can accelerate that, and I really appreciate you talking about the various angles of where the problem actually lies. It is not that there's not enough innovation out there. It is not that there's not a pipeline of excellent entrepreneurs who are willing to um, focus on this. Um, but we also need people like you um, on the side of the table that can really um, just identify with these issues in important ways. So thank you, Candice, for talking about that. Um, if we were to just to look out optimistically, and you seem to be an optimist um, at heart, uh, what? how far do you think we can bend, whether it's the cost curve or any one of the very large macro issues um, in healthcare based on the type of innovation work that you're focused on? Yeah. Um, I, you're right. I'm very optimistic. Um, I think that the change we're, we're looking to see um, is going to come in a couple of forms, right? There's kind of smaller incremental changes that will happen that are really critical. Um, and then there's some big transformational changes that happen once in a generation. And I would argue that we are in the early stages of one of those very exciting transformational changes and that is around AI. Um, I focus the vast majority of my time on tech-enabled services in healthcare. Mm -hmm. And one of the kind of leading issues we're facing is around um, labor shortages, nursing shortages. Um, and the idea that we can leverage technology, right? We, we're not talking about replacing people, um, but leveraging technology so nurses can do what nurses want to do, right? Mm -hmm. Doctors can do what doctors want to do. That is providing care, right? They want to provide good care. And so I'm very excited about AI's ability to, um, you know, just kind of supercharge the ecosystem um, so that we can you know, build larger companies that can serve more people in an economically sustainable way. Larger companies mean they can employ more people, right? That's positive for um, the local economies that they're in. And so I, I'm very excited. I'd be lying to you if I said, oh, in 10 years, this is the percentage of GDP we're going to be spending on healthcare. Um, I, I don't have visibility into that. Um, but I think AI will be a real accelerator for it. Um, but we've also got to be careful. And I think that um, General Catalyst has been a real leader um, given our focus on responsible innovation to make sure that um, you know the regulation around AI, how companies deploy AI is done in a very responsible way because there are some um, potential 
kind of unintended consequences that we need to be eyes wide open about, especially when we're talking about people's health. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I just couldn't agree more. I mean, it's hard to imagine, but it's, it hasn't even been 18 months since AI came crashing onto the healthcare scene um, with so much, you know, enthusiasm, excitement. Um, I mean, nothing has gone that fast in my uh, lifetime for um, what I've seen in healthcare. So the opportunity is there. Um, but that that responsibleness, the transparency that's needed in AI um, is also critical. Maybe that just brings us to what I'd love to close out on, um, if you wouldn't mind, Candice, we're recording this uh, during Black History Month. Um, and I just wanted to maybe go and back to you a bit about yourself. What, what does Black History Month mean to you? How can you give us a little bit on that? Yeah, um, well, to me, Black history is American history, right? It's, it's global history. And I was very fortunate to be raised in a home where um, there was a lot of value placed on understanding history, where you come from, it's exposed to a lot of books, uh, historical figures. And so it's always been core to how I think about American history. Um, mm -hmm. And so for me, I, you know, it's encouraging when um, I see more focus broadly on Black history um, during the month of February, because it feels like we are making progress and closing some of these gaps that exist between um, you know, people who've had different life experiences and different exposure um, to kind of fill in some of these, these holes that exist because it, like I said, it's, it's American history and it serves all of us if um, we have a, kind of a clearer picture of kind of what got us to where we are today so we can make sure the future is brighter. And I think that future gets so much brighter when we have more people, more women, more Black women, more people around important tables making big decisions. And in your case, you know, spawning innovation, investing in innovation, which we know is going to be so critical to change the course of some of these dynamics and trends in healthcare. Candice, I really appreciate this um, conversation on inspiring women. One last question for you. If you were just to give some advice to other younger women who are starting out, whether it's a, to being a journalist or wanting to be a journalist or wanting to go into finance, what advice might you give to them? Yeah, um, my advice would be to don't doubt yourself. You know, if you've done the work, um, show up with confidence. And um, yeah, I think that I think that's my my advice show up with confidence. I, I see too often, um, you know, people getting confused um, by, you know, confident or they confuse confidence with competence. Mm -hmm. And I think women in particular can sometimes do so much work in the background and be so incredibly confident. Um, but then, you know, self-doubt can creep in and it undermines um, how much value we can actually add. So don't doubt yourself. Tell me, just tell me what the tennis is all about. I'm a huge tennis fan. Oh yeah. Um, 
So I grew up playing tennis. Um, my parents didn't play tennis, but my dad was a big fan of sports and Arthur Ashe. Um, and so we just, you know, went to Walmart or something and found local courts and he would kind of throw balls at my sister and I um, and ended up playing pretty competitively um, in the Southeast region growing up, didn't play in college. And then when I graduated from college, I had this itch to play tennis again. Um, and I was searching for tennis courts near me and I found an organization called Kings County Tennis League. And I thought, oh, perfect. This is probably some league where I don't have to wait hours for courts because playing tennis in New York City isn't the most efficient um, unless you want to spend a ton of money on, on right. private courts. Um, and the more research I did, I realized, oh, this is a nonprofit. I said, oh, well, let me show up. And so um, for seven years now, I've been teaching uh, children who live in New York City public housing um, in Bed-Stuy in Brooklyn on the weekends, it's um, May through October. And it has been one of the most fulfilling things I've ever been a part of. So um, I, I'm often on the court where I teach kids who are like, you know, four years old to eight years old. Um, and we take them to the US Open every year. And it's been fun to see a lot of them um, kind of grow and get better at tennis. And, and one of the younger ones that I taught is um, now a coach in the program. And he is at John Jay College um, studying forensic science. And it, yeah, it's it's been really incredible. So these days I'm mainly coaching small kids and on rare occasion, I, I play actual tennis with other adults. <laughs> Well, as a huge tennis fan, I'm hoping that um, you, the kids that you coach, and I'm sure they will be as successful as the investments that you're making in your company. Thanks for sharing that. I've been speaking with Candice Richardson, and this has been an excellent conversation. Candice, thank you so thank much. Thank you, Lori. This was really fun. This has been an episode of Inspiring Women with Lori McGraw. Please subscribe, rate, and review. We are produced by Kate Cruz at Executive Podcast Solutions. More episodes can be found on inspiringwomen.show. I am Lori McGraw, and thank you for listening.